The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, everybody poops and everybody pees. We're talking with David Chu, a pediatric urological surgeon about urine. Then we'll hear from his brother, Daniel Chu, who's a colorectal surgeon, about poop. And finally, we'll hear from Ig Nobel Prize winner Patricia Yang about her work studying the flow rate of mammal pee and why all mammals pee and poop at the same rate. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. When people talk about the certainties of life, they often say the only certain things are death and taxes. But there are other things that come to all of us in time. For example, as the children's book says, everybody poops and everybody pees. But how exactly does that happen? And what happens when it all goes to crap? To start us off with number one, I'm here with David Chu, a pediatric urological surgeon at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. David, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Now, first things first, starting with number one, why do we urinate? Well, the body has multiple ways of getting rid of waste, and pooping is obviously one way, um, but uh, peeing is uh, another way. And it all starts up in the kidneys, uh, the two beans that are kind of located uh, side by side uh, next to your belly button. The kidneys are, uh, some might say, the most important um, organ in the body uh, because they filter about a quarter of your total blood volume, um, and uh, that's a lot of blood. So about one liter or a little bit more, depending on your body size, um, uh, per minute. Uh, so it's 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 a it's a it's a big type of. Um, filter uh, for your bloodstream. And what it does is uh, filters out kind of the waste products, uh, filters out certain electrolytes uh, from your blood um, and converts that essentially into urine. Um, and uh, there's a whole host of um, little loops called nephrons in the kidney, uh, which have multiple parts, uh, different parts of it focus on absorbing electrolytes, certain parts of it focus on absorbing amino acids, for instance, um, certain parts of it uh, focus on absorbing water uh, back into your, um, your vascular system. Uh, uh, but whatever remains uh, gets dumped uh, into the collecting part of the kidney, which then travels down the ureter and into your bladder, uh, where, as we all know, you then pee it out. And when you talk about filtering out waste products, what is considered waste in your blood? Like, what do you need to get out? Well, there's a lot of um, small molecules in the, in the blood, and uh, a lot of blood actually gets reabsorbed. Um, so, for instance, at the beginning of every nephron uh, is a kind of a ball, ball-like structure called the glomerulus. Um, and what that does is it filters uh, kind of the first initial stage um, and uh, certain things get trapped. For instance, protein um, should not uh, um, uh, get filtered through. Uh, but, uh, you know, if there is protein found in the urine, that may be a sign that there is some injury to the glomerulus. Uh, that's just an example. Um, but for instance, you know, electrolytes, sodium uh, ions, for instance, uh, get filtered through. Uh, but a lot of it, that gets reabsorbed in the different parts of the nephron. Um, and it kind of depends on um, how hydrated you are or dehydrated you are. Uh, it depends on um, kind of your blood pressure. I mean, the body has a lot of different mechanisms built in it that self-regulate. Uh, and so uh, if, for instance, you're dehydrated and the part of the nephron that reabsorbs water uh, reabsorbs more water. Um, and uh, and so therefore you get produces more concentrated urine. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, uh, there are certain electrolytes that the body doesn't need or has excess of and that gets uh, put into the urine. And you talked about kidneys uh, doing the filtering. In my head, there's like a little screen in there, but that's obviously not what's happening. How, how does the filtration occur? Yeah, it's kind of like a screen.
brain. Um, I'm not a nephrologist per se, uh, just uh, someone who operates on the kidneys, um, but uh, basic um, renal function, uh, the glomerulus has different cells with kind of membranes across it. Um, and uh, these membranes, essentially, if they're um, normal, uh, do everything kind of automatically. But if there are signs of injury uh, to at the glomerular level, then it's just like a screen. Uh, bigger holes appear and things such as protein, as I mentioned, uh, can pass through, uh, which shouldn't pass through if the memory were intact. And you mentioned that they get the they filter out the waste and the waste in some water kind of goes into the bladder. Once the urine is in the bladder, what happens? Like, how do we know that we've got to go? That's a great question. Um, so since I kind of focus on children, I'll, I'll tell you kind of uh, how that changes um, from birth until we're an adult. So children, as we all know, uh, they urinate frequently and kind of uncontrollably. Um, and it isn't until kind of potty training age when the bladder has grown enough in size uh, that we begin potty training. That essentially is teaching kids to hold on to the urine almost volitionally um, and to go uh, under some sort of better control. Um, part of that is due to uh, the bladder increasing in size and be able to hold more. Um, so normal bladder physiology uh, is uh, pretty complex, but in simple terms, there's two phases. There is a storage phase, which is when the bladder fills with urine uh, that's made and filtered by the kidneys, and there's an emptying stage. So let's talk about the first part, the storage phase. Uh, the bladder is essentially a reservoir, um, and uh, under normal circumstances, as it fills up, it is able to stretch uh, kind of the properties of the bladder wall, the cells in the bladder, uh, the muscle, the, the kind of inner uh, lining layer, uh, it has a viscoelasticity uh, which allows it to stretch and accommodate. Um, it's kind of like blowing up a balloon in a way. Um, and that property, that viscoelasticity uh, property, allows it to stretch uh, and accommodate in adults, you know, up to 500 cc's without a huge increase in pressure inside the bladder. And that's important um, because you want to keep it a low pressure system uh, to avoid injury uh, upstream to the kidneys. Uh, for example. Um, and a lot of this storage mechanism is under the control of uh, the sympathetic nervous system, uh, as well as probably the somatic uh, nervous system. Um, and, you know, just to kind of give you a brief outline of the nervous systems in the bodies, uh, there's nervous system, part of the nervous system that we can control called the somatic system. And then the part of the nervous system that we can't control called the autonomic nervous system, which includes the sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, nervous systems. Um, somatic is, you know, kind of like you're raising an arm. Um, or, you know, lifting your, lifting your leg up. Uh, the autonomic, you know, controls a lot of things. Heart rate, for instance, um, controls kind of your bowel function uh, and similarly controls your bladder function. So the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for the storage phase of, uh, of the bladder. Um, and uh, that essentially it relaxes the muscle of the bladder um, such that it allows kind of this innate viscoelasticity property to work and to stretch uh, without increase in pressure. Now, there's also a somatic part of the storage system. Um, the somatic uh, is leading, uh, essentially it's a, a, a nerve, the pudendal nerve, that leads to uh, something called the external urinary sphincter. Um, and uh, this is linked strongly to pelvic floor muscles uh, such that, you know, if you're, you're ever taught to do Kegel exercises and you're squeezing down there, you're essentially kind of squeezing that external sphincter since it's part of the pelvic floor muscles. Um, and so, uh, you know, for instance, if you are in a situation where where you feel the urge to pee, uh, but you're trying to hold it in and you squeeze down there, that's essentially where you're squeezing the external sphincter uh, to prevent leakage. Um, so that's all the storage phase.
disease. Um, now, when it, your bladder gets to a certain volume, uh, there are certain nerves uh, in the lining of the bladder that, uh, when it gets stretched enough, uh, sends a signal uh, to the brain, uh, to part of the, the, the pons of the brain, uh, called the pontine micturation center, uh, which uh, then shoots signals uh, back down to the bladder um, uh, to into the next phase, which is the voiding phase or emptying phase. Now, the emptying phase uh, consists of two parts as well. Uh, one is the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's uh, what kind of causes the muscles around the bladder to squeeze, uh, essentially to squeeze um, together to empty the bladder of urine. Um, and uh, there's also um, a nerve uh, that leads to um, the sphincter, the somatic part of it, uh, which you you know, essentially tells it to relax. Um, so once the opening down below relaxes and then the muscle above uh, around the bladder squeezes, then that's how the bladder is able to expel urine. I love that the brain area is called the pontine micturation center because micturation just means to pee. And I guess calling it the Pontine P Center is just not professional sounding enough. <laughs> uh, there's lots of nicknames for certain centers, but yes. Um, that is the probably the official uh, you know PC term for the center. <laughs> now you know you mentioned the whole uh, Kegel exercises, and of course I started doing mine immediately. Um, <laughs> but this is what you do when you have to hold it. Can bad things happen if you hold your urine long enough? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know that's something that my my mom always used to tell me growing up when I was a child. Like never hold your pee for too long because uh, things go bad. I don't know who told her. Um, you know she she didn't go to med school or anything, but uh, uh, it's true. Um, and we see that frequently in kids, uh, for instance, um, you know, kids who are taught uh, and they're positively rewarded for not peeing in their diaper uh, or not peeing in their underwear. Uh, but sometimes in kids, this can be overshot. And so then they pee once or twice a day, uh, which is too uh, rare um, a frequency. Um, and what part of the way they do that is by kind of squeezing down there when they when their bladder fills up to a normal volume that should trigger the brain to you know want to get uh, go pee, but they fight that. And, you know, you might see kids who kind of cross their legs or, um, uh, you know, try to uh, do other postures to kind of prevent or fight off that urge to pee, uh, which uh, unfortunately can lead to future bedwetting, can lead to uh, incontinence, um, and, uh, you know, lead to urinary tract infections, a whole host of uh, bad outcomes. Um, so in adults, uh, it can also, um, it can also uh, lead to uh, impaired bladder function. Now, in adults, it's a little trickier um, because there may be other issues at play. Uh, for instance, in older men, uh, prostatic, uh, benign prostatic enlargement uh, obviously is a culprit um, in voiding difficulties. Um, but uh, taking all that aside, kind of fighting the urge to pee or peeing, you know, once to three times a day uh, really isn't healthy. Uh, we encourage, you know, especially in kids, you know, they should pee every two to three hours. Uh, normal adults should pee every four hours or so. Um, and when you feel the urge, you know, you, you, you go pee um, and try not to fight it. The pee must flow. Is that what you're telling me? You must flow. Let it flow. That's right. David, thank you so much for letting your urinary knowledge flow forth, as it were. <laughs> My pleasure. We've linked to more information about David Chu at scienceforthepeople.ca. But we've only talked about number one. What about number two? To talk us through that, we're going to hear from a colorectal surgeon who also happens to be David Chu's brother. A colorectal surgeon and a urological surgeon. Their parents must be so proud. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. 
we are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. To talk us through the number two, I'm here with Dr. Daniel Chu, a colorectal surgeon and assistant professor in the Department of Gastrointestinal Surgery at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Glad to be here. Now, I want to start with a basic question. Why do we poop? Yeah, so everyone has to poop. Everyone has to defecate. And it's part of the waste material uh, that we have from digestion. So we all have to eat food, and what comes in has to come out somewhere. And what is poop? We know it's kind of waste products, but what does that mean? Yeah, so poop is really, as I described to patients, a combination of two main parts. So there's the undigested material, things such as fiber, and then there's water. And stool is really just a balance of those two uh, products. And if we have too much water, we get diarrhea. If we don't have enough of the fiber or bulk to hold the water, then we get constipation. So those are kind of the both ends of the spectrum. And um, and uh, what we eat goes into our intestinal tract. Our body basically tries to absorb uh, the nutrients and that it can. And then what comes out is everything that it couldn't absorb. Now, we know that poop goes, you know, well, we know that poop doesn't go in. Food goes in. I hope poop doesn't go in. Food goes in (laughs) to your mouth and down to your stomach, and then you absorb nutrients in the small intestine. But how then does digested food form poop? What exactly does it take mechanistically to form what we eventually evacuate? Yeah, so what's interesting is that if you look in the intestinal tract, you eat the food that goes into your stomach as solid. Um, your stomach has acid, uh, and it begins breaking down the food that you eat uh, into um, smaller components, and it becomes actually very liquefied um, as it works through your stomach and down to your small intestine, so that at the very end of your small intestine, which is something we call the terminal ileum, it's almost all liquid. And what happens at the very end of the small bowel is it connects to your large bowel or your colon. And all that liquid, which is about one to two liters of liquid, gets into your colon and your colon does the job of resorbing all that water. So that's when it becomes more of the solid poop that we tend to think of and that what most people have. So it's actually all liquid by the time it gets to the end of your small bowel. And once it enters your colon, your colon absorbs the water. You can almost think of it like a food processor sort of dehydrates what's there. And that's really when you get this more solid material. And so for people who are missing their colon, for instance, after surgery, those patients tend to have very liquid bowel movements, which is very typical. Um, So mechanistically, that's really in a sense what happens is it's all liquid and then you dehydrate or re- you reabsorb that water and it becomes more solid. And then that can be, that, that falls on a spectrum of whether it's too liquid or too solid. 
And what is the spectrum? Yeah, so the spectrum would be, uh, you know, if anyone who's had really, you know, massive diarrhea, where it could be almost like pee, essentially, that's basically um, the most uh, liquid form it could get. Um, and then you have the solid form where it's hard as a rock, what people describe, where people may be pooping once a week. That's basically constipation. And that stool, as some people can attest to, is uh, just um, incredibly hard to get out and uh, incredibly dense and has essentially almost dry sometimes. And we talked about how the large intestine kind of resorbs all of this water um, from the uh, kind of liquid that you have to create this uh, this log, as it were. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. What happens once you have the log? Like, what occurs in the body to make us go? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So it's actually much more uh, sophisticated than, um, than than what, you know, even I knew many, um, you know, when I was in medical school. Um, so the liquid kind of hits your right colon. Your right colon does most of the water absorption. And as it starts moving its way from the right colon all the way down to the rectum, which is the very end of your colon, it becomes obviously more more solid. And what happens is that it builds up in the rectum. And the rectum is really a area that, in a sense, stores the stool, uh, whether it's liquid or whether it's solid. And the rectum actually can blow up like a balloon. It has huge capacity to hold um, large amounts of stool. And that's a good thing because you need that rectum to act like a balloon. Because if you didn't, you'd just be pooping all over yourself. And what happens is the rectum's on top of what we call the pelvic floor. That in a sense, if you had to draw a picture, really rectum's like a single tube, and a pelvic floor is like a funnel. And you're basically putting this tube right through the funnel, except the funnel is a big piece of muscle that holds all of our innards up so that we're not falling, it's not falling through our pelvis. Um, and that pelvic floor is the key, because that pelvic floor senses when the rectum becomes full. And that's the sensation that we have when we have to poop. Um, and when you have the sensation, you know, you have, most people have control and can hold it until it's kind of a socially appropriate time to, to go to the bathroom. But when that rectum fills with stool, you feel, you feel it. And then you have control and then over your pelvic floor, um, and the anus. Um, and what's interesting is, and it's, we're, you know, we don't know everything about this area, but it's incredibly sophisticated, but we have a lot of nerves in the anus and in the pelvic floor. And if I could just put it simply, you know, the the stool that's in the rectum eventually gets, and I'll put this in quotations, it's sampled by the top of the anus. So the anal canal can basically relax to a point where it can sample the contents from the rectum, whether it's stool or even whether it's gas. Um, so when we all have to pass gas, a lot of us can feel the sensation. We know it's coming, so we can potentially control it. Or even let it out and not let stool out. And so that's really all happening at the very end where the pelvic floor, rectum, and anus is all kind of together. So um, this ability to sense and sample stool or gas then feeds back to our brains and then we can have control of when to release and relax. So it's um, kind of a long-winded answer, but it's, uh, so it's very fascinating and sophisticated mechanism in terms of how we defecate. That's amazing. I had no idea that 
we were, I mean, of course, I'm sure we all kind of feel the difference between, you know, when you know you have to fart and when you know you have to poop, but I've never realized that the rectum can, can sense that really yeah, <laughs> directly. So, yeah. So, and the rectum, we really don't appreciate this until, you know, until you remove the rectum. So patients, you know, that we do surgeries on where we have to remove the rectum and reconnect things, we, we, we know the function's different. You know, we tell patients, you're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be pooping more, uh, and your poop actually could be more liquid. You might not have great control over it, but you should still feel when you're about to poop. And what's interesting is the, um, the nerves in the area too, you know, in the colon, in the rectum, the nerves are what we call automatic nerves. They're nerves that you don't really, you can't control with your, with your mind. They're, they're just always working kind of by themselves. But the pelvic floor and the very distal kind of part, some of the muscles around your anus, you do have control. So, you know, if you're on the, as we say in medical school, you know, when we pull medical students onto the front of the room and try to pimp them, you know, they, their, their sphincter muscles tighten, right? So that's the part that you have control over. When you're frightened, you squeeze. When you're about to kind of basically fart in the classroom full of people, you can actually feel that sensation. You can actually hold it. You can squeeze a little bit. That's some control that you have voluntarily over your anus. So these nerves, though, in the, that area are very sophisticated and can really kind of determine whether or not you're, you know, about to go solid or, or fart, basically. And so, you know, if you ever think about it, you know, you actually can tell a difference between the two. And, you know, we always joke about the silent fart, you know, on the school bus. But, you know, those people knew it was coming. It didn't just happen. And they had some control over its release. Well, now I'm sure that if we weren't thinking about it before, the next time we all have that feeling, we are all going to be thinking about it because I know I will. That's right. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that, you know, if you talk about the anus, and the, the anus is really um, the end, obviously, of the of the colon. So, again, it's just part of the long tube. And um, the the anus itself, um, the way to think about it is that it's it's actually always slightly contracted. So, you know, when we're walking around, this, this muscle that really is a circle around the anus um, is constantly kind of, is constantly contracted. And actually, so when we have to go, what we're doing is we're actually relaxing the muscles. And that's actually what lets things through. So when you're pooping, the same thing. When you're on the toilet and you're just relaxing, that, I mean, you can feel that relaxation. And that's when kind of the poop comes through that very end of the pelvic floor and the anus. Um, what's interesting, too, uh, is that there's actually another muscle um, that runs. And if I could draw a picture, it's like a sling that runs from kind of the front of your pelvis in a sling that wraps around your rectum and it actually pulls and keeps the rectum at a angle and it actually kind of pulls the tube in an angle so that the poop doesn't normally come out and that keeps us continent but ways to relax that sling or that 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 angle is is actually um sitting so that's part of the reason why it's really if you ever tried it's really hard to poop when you're standing and in fact Pooping, you almost always have to stoop over and kind of on a seat, on a toilet seat, you know, and it's because that relaxes that angle so that you can actually have a straight tube and the poop can come out easier. Um, so that's another kind of Mother Nature's clever design in terms of um, our ability, our mechanisms of defecating. And you mentioned that the rectum is kind of like a balloon. It can aqu- accommodate a very large quantity. How, how much? Like, is there a limit? 
Um, so this, uh, you know, I won't be able to tell you exactly the volume. Um, I can tell you there is a limit um, because the rectum can get to a point where it holds so much stool that um, that not, that uh, it can blow out basically. So you can have rectal perforate or colon perforations from stuff if it keeps building up in, in size. That I mean, the rectum itself, if you think about the colon, can get over 10 centimeters in width, um, and so it can stretch the colon pretty far. Um, so that's what we call compliance or the ability of that wall to kind of stretch. And you mentioned, you know, there's all this relaxation that takes place. There's this sense of, of urgency and then, you know, you gotta go. How often do most people go? Is there an average or a range? Um, yeah. So I, I would say that most people, um, I would say go, uh, w- uh once a day. Um, and the, 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 but when you start going, we're talking like you know, once a week um, or three times a week. You know, that's when you start thinking about issues of uh, constipation. Um, and there's a lot of different, di- a lot of different definitions, I guess, of when uh, people would say that you have constipation. Um, but uh, basically, uh, you know, sometimes three times a week, one time a week, those would be issues times when you would start worrying about um, constipation. And what is constipation like we know it, it's it's a dried out stool how does that happen um yeah so there's a couple reasons um for that so so most common reason is just purely dietary so essentially um patients aren't uh having the what i call quote unquote the perfect stool and so you know when i tell patients to have the, to work on their bowel habits i say increase the fiber um that you have to about 30 grams a day and at the same time, you also need 60 ounces of water, eight glasses of water a day. And that combination gives you what I think is the perfect ratio and gives you stool that's not liquid and it's not pure solid. It's soft. It's right in the middle. It's like it flows right out. Um, and so that would be, you know, about like, oh, a once a day kind of deal. Um, and then, but so, so that's one reason. It's just the, the, the content of the stool itself is wrong. Now, that being said, then there are other kind of more nefarious reasons for why someone would have constipation and only poop once a week or once a month. Those are then could be more anatomical. So people who have problems at the pelvic floor, which is, you know, the very end of the colon, sometimes people have floors that don't relax at all. Sometimes people have um, little, as I say, um, ab- abnormalities of the rectum itself, uh, things that pouch, that, that um kind of form extra cavities on the side of the rectum, something called a rectal seal. Um, these can be reasons that anatomic reasons why people can't completely evacuate their stool. And then other people have a uh, condition uh, where the colon itself doesn't work very well from a nervous system standpoint. And there's no propulsion of, of, of stool forward. And that's a, um, a more rare uh, condition, but does affect many people that um, potentially has a surgical solution for it, which is to take out their colon. Um, so essentially, there's a couple of different reasons why people have constipation. By far and large, the most common reason is just simply the stool and the habits that a patient would have. And then you have some more other medical, surgical reasons in which a specialist kind of has to deal with it. So now that you've told me that there's such a thing as a perfect poop, you know, it's, it, you're, you're holding up this image of, you know, the perfect poop, and it's just one more thing for everyone to worry about. Are they pooping perfectly or not? That's right. Yeah. So, and, and you know, and I would say, you know, and I tell us all my folks, too, you know, whenever someone comes see us in our colorectal clinic, um, obviously something's usually going on with the 
with a colon and, you know, and with other problems, okay, not just constipation, uh, stool, but sometimes there's problems with hemorrhoids, sometimes there's problems with um, pain in the anus, um, other issues like that. But the underlying, almost the first step we always, always take with all our patients for all of these constellation of problems is working on bowel habits, working on the diet. Because, um, you know, we, we don't eat enough fiber here in the U.S. Uh, at all. And if you've ever recorded how much fiber you eat in a day, it's pretty abysmal. You know, I'm in Alabama here. Um, you know, meat is like a number one thing and there's zero grams of fiber in meat. And, you know, I told patients, you know, do you eat enough fiber? Patients always say, I do. Uh, I, I eat a bowl of oatmeal every day. Then I ask how many grams of uh, fiber are in oatmeal. They don't know. You know, they think it's everything. It's about two grams, three grams of fiber in a bowl of oatmeal. And you need about 30 grams of fiber a day is really what I tell my patients. So, they have a long way to go. And so um, so the perfect stool, getting that ratio is good not only for your colon and for bowel habits, but it can also affect um, other kind of disease processes too and, uh, and uh, improve some of those symptoms. So it's a win-win basically across the board. You're not just helping your constipation. You can help any hemorrhoidal problems, any anal rectal problems. It's probably good for you also just from a cancer perspective in terms of laying off some of those red meats and just going back to really what kind of uh, the, the people, you know, people growing uh, historically, what we used to eat more of, which is fiber. And you mentioned hemorrhoids. What are hemorrhoids exactly? Yeah, so hemorrhoids. So that's like, oh boy, that, that we could talk an hour on hemorrhoids. So hemorrhoids are essentially um, uh, actually kind of cushioning of tissue that lines the anus at the very, very end, and. Um, one of these hemorrhoids, um, there's actually two levels of hemorrhoids, one called internal hemorrhoids and one called external hemorrhoids. The difference is basically internal hemorrhoids are higher up in the anus and they're in an area where there are no nerves. And then the external hemorrhoids are below at the very end of the anus where there are nerves. Now, hemorrhoids are actually Mother Nature's clever design and everyone has the tissue to form hemorrhoids. And if we look close enough, you can, they actually sw- they swell up in everybody. So when we laugh, when we cough, when we sneeze, they all swell a little bit and actually contribute to our continence. Meaning, when we laugh, when we cough, it's not like we're blowing out poop every time we do that or farting every time that we laugh, cough, or sneeze. So it actually helps hold in air flatus and stool. So it's a natural mechanism for continence. Now, it just happens, though, that for some people, usually older, um, the tissue gets more lax and it gets bigger and it forms these protrudes more. And it gets to a point where it can protrude so much that it can potentially droop out through the bottom. And that's when people really start noticing things because they're wiping and they feel a lump on their bottom. And those are those could be hemorrhoids. So they're actually Mother Nature's natural design to keep this continent. It just gets bigger and looser in certain individuals. And in, in certain individuals, it gets to a point where it's so big that it can basically sometimes, for example, be cut by a ball of hard stool. So again, people who get constipated have hard stool. These stool balls can basically cut the tissue, and it's paper thin. And when they cut it, it's like a paper cut, and it bleeds like a mother, and it's bright red blood. People get really scared. It fills up the toilet bowl because it's diluting out into that whole water. And then, um, and, and then they get what we call bleeding from hemorrhoids, which is probably the number one issue with hemorrhoids. And why people come in to see us is they start seeing bleeding after bowel movements. So that's sort of a short description of um, hemorrhoids. So we all have them. Um, they're actually, uh, in a sense, natural for us to keep continence. 
Um, but they do can become bigger and become more kind of pathologic and cause problems like bleeding. Um, and that's usually when we get to see them. Now we've, we've kind of talked about the, the hard matter as it were. So can we switch a little bit over to the soft matter? What causes diarrhea? Yeah. So yeah, so good question. So kind of similar to the flip side of hard stool, um, again, dietary uh, function uh, plays a big role in terms of the consistency of the stool. And so probably one of the, uh, the things that we say when someone has very loose stool is to um, ask about, well, how much water are you drinking and then how much fiber are you eating? So the same story again. And sometimes a lot of these people, we don't have enough fiber. So we bulk up the stool, meaning we add fiber um, to this to their diet, and this gets this is the bulk. This is the part that can never be resorbed by your colon. So it always stays there and it holds the water, draws in water essentially, and then can bulk up and kind of reduce the amount of loose stools that happen. So that's probably one of the common reasons for diarrhea. The other reasons though for diarrhea are usually what everyone can remember when you get a GI bug, for instance. And so what happens there is that essentially the colon um basically either it doesn't do a good job resorbing the water because of, inf- of the disease infection, or it actually can secrete fluid backwards. So it's almost backwards. It, re- it secretes fluid into the the, the, the the lumen of your colon. So it adds water into the lumen. And then that can contribute to um, just huge amounts of, 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 of diarrhea. Now, if you have time, I'd like to take a side trip into flatulence. <laughs> Yeah. The best kind of side trip. Why do we fart? Yeah, so so um so part of the reasons um when we talk to uh so a lot of the reasons or a lot of the gas that's produced in our intestines is actually from air that's swallowed. Um so that's actually uh, something that uh is uh kind of surprises people. Um so yes, you know, we the bacteria in our gut can produce um uh some amount of gas that can contribute, but a lot of it actually just has to do with what we swallow from our mouth that works its way all the way down uh, through the anus, essentially. And so um, so that's the number one, I would say, reason for why we have platus. And then number two would just be simply be um, the bacteria. And we have, you know, uh, you know, tons of bacteria living in our colon and trillions of it. And it's a huge amount of, um, of living organisms that can potentially uh, form form gas from the different kind of foods that 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 we might eat, um, but you know when we do surgery on patients uh, for the colon and rectum, and we reconnect people, uh, one of the first things that we always ask for every day when we see patients postoperatively is whether or not they pass any gas. Not so much are you passing any stool. We actually care more about gas than stool because we know that the gas largely comes from the mouth. So if someone's passing gas, it means that they're GI tract is open. It's working. It's passing gas from the mouth all the way down through to the bottom end. So for us, gas is very important. We don't care so much about stool because the colon, again, can, even if you disconnect everyone's colons and just leave a little blind end there, that colon will still produce stuff. It still produces mucus. So people can still have bowel movements, even if they're completely disconnected from the rest of their intestinal tract. Now, you mentioned a little earlier that, you know, some farts are, are the silent but deadly variety that causes school bus havoc. What <laughs> makes some farts more smelly than others? 
Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, so I won't, <laughs> I won't be able to tell you exactly why it is, except that the that some of it has to do with the. I mean, so some of it has to do with the foods um, that we eat, uh, and so things like meat sometimes have um, you know smellier farts. Um, so that may have just have to do with the way that the bacteria processes um, some of the foods that make it to the colon. colon. And. Why are some farts so that, you know, you mentioned the silent but deadly. Some farts make oh, yeah. noise and others don't. What causes farting noises? Yeah, so that just has to do with the opposition um, or the kind of the, the way that the anus is. The anus is normally closed uh, when you look at it. And so, because um, and, and, it's a, it's constantly contracted. And so, it's that re- the degree of relaxation. Um, and it's kind of just like, you know, those tricks you can use where you squirt water through your the cup of your hands in the swimming pool and you can squirt water out. You can also make farting noises that way. It's essentially the tissue, the air moving through kind of opposed tissue that essentially, you know, when you look at it closely, you can flap and causes that noise. So, so, you know, silent farts, you can, if you stretch out the, you know, we did this at, uh, at school. Let's just remember, you know, you stretch out your butt, pin one side down on a chair, move away over to the other side, stretch out your anus a little bit. It can be a silent fart. Um, keep it together, uh, you know, it's like blowing your cheeks together, It's, um, it's it, it can be um, very noisy. So noisy farts are, are from uptight people. <laughs> Never thought about that way, but entirely possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, Daniel, thank you so much for this fascinating fecal focus. Absolutely. My, my, my pleasure. I am so thrilled to finally meet someone with whom I can spend an hour talking about hemorrhoids, so I hope you're free later. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. You can reach me anytime. (laughs) We've linked to more information about Daniel Chu, as well as some scientific writing about feces and farts at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we're talking with someone who does research that might be called crappy. It might piss some people off, but it's good. It's solid. There's no floaters here. We'll hear from Patricia Yang about her work calculating how long it takes your average mammal to pee and poop. Stay tuned for more science and for my wealth of poop puns. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back. I'm here with Patricia Young, a mechanical engineer at Georgia Tech University in Atlanta. Patricia is a graduate student in the lab of Dr. David Hu and is most well known for her 2014 paper, Duration of Urination Does Not Change with Body Size. With a paper like that as number one, is it any wonder that she tackled number two? Her latest paper out this year is called The Hydrodynamics of Defecation. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Nice to be here. Now, you are a mechanical engineer. Why are you studying pee and poop? They are actually fluid mechanics. If you can imagine, they are waters. We mostly focus on waters not inside our body, like splashes, air conditions, but actually the fluid inside our body that keep us body function are important and they are fluid mechanics. 
And why is it important to study how long it takes animals to pee and poo? Uh, how long it takes, the time, the duration of this is actually, um, I would say, the, the comic version of this study. But more important is we want to have a easy, quick, non-invasive task for bladder health or gut health. So if an animal takes a, a longer or shorter time to pee, for example, it might indicate something about their health? Yes. Um, for example, I mean, people might notice there's a wide range of my study in time, like I say 21 plus minus 13 or 12 plus minus 7. So if you're 22 seconds instead of 21, you're fine. But if you're like more than a minute, then probably you should see a doctor. Now, for your first paper on urination, you got video of different kinds of mammals peeing. Can you give me a range of some of the species that you got video of? Oh, yeah. So actually, people thought I took all the videos, but most of the videos are from YouTubes. And uh, what was that search function like? <laughs> it's simple, right? <laughs> Just do. Um, you will be surprised. There are actually tons of animal peeing video in YouTube. I, I don't you think that I'm surprised. I just oh, really? it seems a little adult. <laughs> Uh, okay, maybe. Anyway, so, so we just uh, search elephant pee or rhino pee, rhino urine, or dog, any mammals you could think of at zoo. You just search and then pretty much you can get all of them. And when you had all of your species, you ended up actually dividing your mammals into small mammals below three kilograms and larger ones that went up to about 8,000 kilograms. Why did you draw that dividing line? Um, so I actually, uh, yeah, previously I said I got most of the videos from YouTube, right? But then some of the animals, they don't have it on YouTube. Say, uh, bats, rats, mice, this common lab animals, or some very, very big animal. And we want to know the details, say elephants or goats. So I actually filmed them at zoo and on campus. So we figured out for small animals, like um, as I said, the line for three kilograms, they are actually doing this very high speed droplets. And you can only see it when you film it with high speed camera. And larger mammals produce urine in kind of a jet or a stream. Why do small mammals have this high speed droplet style? So the reason why these small animals, they do droplets, is because they're, um, the name is called urethra, but you might be, might be easier to understand if I say that's pee pee pipe. This is the pipe from bladder to when it comes out. So this pipe for the smaller animal, they are too narrow. So they have very high resistance from um, viscosity and surface tension. This resistance divided, divides the, the drop, the stream into droplets and the, the small animals like, like um, rats, mice, and but they actually squeaks out these droplets. So because there's too much resistance, it can't form a full jet? Yes. But for larger animals, they don't have this problem anymore. Like for um, smaller animals, I say three kilogram, like small cat to uh, lions to elephant, of course, their urethra is way wider compared to uh, small uh, rats. So they don't, the surfacing, surface tension or the viscosity are not that important. Now, you ended up creating a model for the duration of urination. How did you do it? Like, what factors are really important for how long it takes to pee? The most important factors are the dimension of dimensions of urethra. 
including the, the length, which is the, the height of urethra and the width of urethra. We found that for larger animals, definitely have wider urethra and the width of urethra dictates how big the orifice is. So there are more flow, of course, but also the height of urethra that dictate the, how much acceleration from gravity it could get. So the taller the urethra, you can get more acceleration from gravity. So does this mean there's a sex difference as well? Because, you know, like females have different urethras. And of course, they also like pee at a slightly different angle compared to male mammals who, of course, have this penis that's like hanging. Yes, actually, that is something I'm trying to figure out right now is how we didn't see a very obvious gender difference in timing. But I so we are collaborating with um, uh, urologists in Japan. And he actually spread out, he did a survey at uh, like a train station to 2,000 Japanese people about their timing, uh, the, their urination time and their gender, their age, everything. So the age, dif- the gender difference actually is obvious for human being, for males and females, but not that obvious for other animals because um, uh, humans are animals that have urethra and uh, let's say human females <laughs> they have divided uh channel uh say uh vagina and urethra but this division is not assist for other man, man um mammals say for um rabbits or or cats the the bladder are actually connected with vagina and go through the same channel really i didn't know that yeah, that's gonna be our my next study of uh, my next paper. So it shall, if you count the affected height, including the the part that's connected to the vagina, the the length of this um affected urine path is actually similar to that of males, but it's not happening for humans. So you will see obvious uh the difference human being, but not animal data. And to do this, one of your collaborators actually timed people peeing in train stations. They gave out stopwatches. <laughs> I want to hear all about that study when it comes out. <laughs> oh, so it's actually a collaboration after we got interview from uh, NHK, and they found this clips about what we're doing at zoo and on campus. And this um, d- medical doctor spread out a survey and kind of make it interesting for people to join. So, so, so they found the the eight the urination time is actually correlated with the human age and the gender. So if, say, for elder people, they actually pee longer because the, the, the degradation of bladder muscle. But for, and for, uh, let's see, I can, if I can remember correctly, males are actually pee a little bit faster than females. That is awesome. If I remember correctly, yes. (laughs) And your paper actually did come up with a final duration of peeing for large mammals and small mammals. What are the numbers? They are, for large animals, they are 21 plus minus 30 seconds. So that's up to almost a minute. Yes. And this is exactly the the average timing, average second from that 2000 survey. And what about small mammals? For small mammals, it should be less than one second, but we only have uh, three animals. Bats, um, bats, rats, and mice. So we are not very conclusive at this point, but we believe it will be less than one second. 
Now, moving on to more hmm, solid matter, as it were. Uh, <laughs> once you did urine, you moved on to poop and took a video of animals defecating. Uh, what animals did you end up filming at the zoo? So elephants are the best. They never been shy. <laughs> So we can film them, and they have um, regular peeing and pooping time. So we can predict and go there with schedule and film them expected in two hours. But for other animals, the uh, they might have camera shy while pooping. So in a we have elephants, pandas, warthogs, and dogs that we can get a close up of defecating. And why did you pick pandas? Because they they are just not shy. <laughs> Of camera and they usually poop at the position that some of the animals when they poop they hide so we won't get the the the, the shot of their butt but the pandas don't do that so we can get perfect angle of their butt their butt and their poop and when you filmed dogs you actually filmed at dog parks how how did that go over did the dog owners give you funny looks so the dog owners is actually one of the author it's candace dog oh so you like took a specific dog to the dog park yeah candace is one of the best students i have ever had so you couldn't believe this, but all the videos and photos on this close-up shot took her like one semester staying at zoo every weekend. Wow. She was at the zoo every weekend filming people, well, animals pooping. Animals poop. Yeah. And she could only get three of them, uh, elephants, warthogs, and pandas. And I said, no, we need four <laughs> for the paper. We need four. And she's like, okay, I will try my own dog. And then after a weekend, she got the shot. <laughs> and you ended up dividing the poop into sinkers and floaters. What's the difference between sinkers and floaters? So we, we collect a bunch, pretty much all feces from feces from all mammals at Zoo Atlanta. And we start to test over the properties including density or viscosity, we can discuss later. But for density, we just test over with a scoop of like um, the volume we know and test over the, the density of it. We figure out for, for herbivores, the, the poop are actually just formed by haze, fibers, and a little bit amount of stones there. No, there's no stone, just fibers. So it's lighter than water. And for sinkers, they are from carnivores, like uh, lions, cats, and these the poops they're in front of um, hairs, bones, and and stones and stones. So they actually have, are way denser than 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 water. And as well as measuring um, the density, you actually looked at the rheology of the feces. What is rheology? Rheology is this fancy term in academic, but it really means how sticky it is, how sticky, how viscous it is. So how slimy. Yes. How would you feel when you step on dog feces? And how do you measure that other than, you know, stepping on dog poop on purpose? There is actually a very uh, professional equipment called rheometer, which is measuring rheology of a specific material. And how it works is actually a, more like a blender. So it rotates, uh, he, uh, it blends the, the material, say, I put feces in, okay, it blends the feces at a specific rate I want and, and measure how much resistance during that rate. 
So it's like a gigantic blender that just measures the blending. Yeah, measures measures at different rates though. So you have say five speed, and you measure if when you increase the speed, when you blend it faster, will the the material be more sticky, more sticky or more watery? And you also found that, like the constant rate of urination, mammals have a constant rate of defecation, right? What were the numbers? It's thirteen seconds plus minus seven seconds. And what I found really interesting about this paper is that a lot of this pooping rate has to do with mucus, which is something I'd never realized before. What is the role of mucus here? Mucus is a small, transparent, liquidy. Fluid everywhere in the body, like like say in te- tears is more like water, so not mucus, but more like um say uh say in your throat all the way to your gut, or maybe when you got cold, your nasal fluid they are mucus. So it's a little bit sticky but transparent, and this thickness or the thickness of this liquid is actually the key of defecation. It helps lubricate the process. The time when I measured the viscosity using the blender of the feces, I figured out actually it's no way for animal to defecate this amount of material in in thirteen seconds because the material is more like solid. But because of the the mucus, that transparent fluid coating outside the surface of feces in between, so the feces in between feces and the gut, like the rectum. So it actually, that's the fluid that lubricates the whole process. So basically, poop is way too sticky to and solid to like come out on its own. We need something to like make it slide. Yes, and that would be actually it actually indicate if you have constipation. Probably it's because you don't have enough mucus. And what about with diarrhea? Does that affect your model as well? Yeah. So we, as as we just said, we have bunch of data on property of feces. So we can test over dry feces and watery feces. So for um for diarrhea, we just assume a, a very extreme case that you are defecating water, and in that case, you actually you probably don't need any pushing force from the body, but just need gravity, and the the whole matter to come out in less than I think less than one second. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Yes, you, you you probably have to see a doctor too. <laughs> and you did this model of defecation in animals at the zoo. You looked at like the rheological measurements of all of these animals and lots of video at the dog park. Does this model of pooping apply to people? I think so because the the benefit. I mean, the main feature of my study is I do with a lot of animals that cross wide range of body size, and I believe human are in between. Say um from dogs to to elephant and the feature is that no matter if that's duration of urination or defecation the time does not change with body size which means the time of defecation we are all the same so if that's the case then why do we spend so much time in the bathroom hmm okay let me tell you how i time the duration <laughs> i only people ask this question a lot so i for the when I count the time, I look at animals, but very very carefully. And when I start the timing, when I see the first piece of feces comes out. But for human being, you have iPod there, you have newspaper, you have everything. And I didn't get a chance to look at very closely when the first piece come out. 
So there's a lot of stuff going on before the pooping in people. Yes, and you should not count newspaper time. (laughs) And this doesn't apply to all mammals because not all mammals poop in logs, right? What about animals that poop in pellets? Yeah, so in this first paper of poop, we we only talk about the, the mammals that defecate logs in different, say, two piece or more than at most four piece of logs. And there are some animals, say rats, uh, rabbits, ro- okay, rodents, rabbits, and ruminants. They actually defecate with single uh, pellets or a bag of pellets feces. So for these animals, apparently they are different. The process is different. They, they do have uh, mucus outside, but it's more like how the, the feces breaks in the body and how the sphere formed. And has this really changed how you think about urination and defecation? Like, does this, does this, has this changed your life? Oh, yeah. So, um, you might, so all in all our research meeting over this, so I'm fifth year, going to be a sixth year graduate student. So during the past five years, all the meetings are, what we have found and what I feel. And no, that's not what it had last night. <laughs> so you're yes. constantly comparing the video to your own personal experiences? Yeah, because as a scientist, you want, if you want to convince other people, you got to convince yourself or your team first, right? And, and say, say I propose this idea of mucus and people think about it like my advisor and then, and then with, and then the, the other day he talked to me like, but I didn't see mucus. Where is the mucus? You need to have visualization of it. <laughs> so what you're telling me is next time we all use the bathroom, we need to look for the mucus. Um, Actually, mucus is very, very thin, like about the thinness of your hair. So you can only get that uh, shininess if you have fresh feces less than 30 seconds. Okay, so look quickly. Yeah, and probably that'd be easier if you look at if you have a dog that'd be easier. Just observe the poop from your pack. And should we report to you if we find good mucus? Uh, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Actually, I got a lot self-report data on urination time after my first publication. Hey, people just want to help science, man. I feel honored, and thank you for everyone. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Patricia Young's fabulous work, we've linked to her papers and her Twitter feed at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a review that hopefully does not stink. You can also find our Patreon page, where you can support our intrepid band of podcasters with a monthly donation. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. 
Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.